I'd like you to turn in your Bible, please, to Isaiah chapter 53. And while you're turning there, I want to tell of a story out of a book called All of Grace by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's one of my favorite stories by one of my historical heroes. And it reads as follows. I remember this by a circumstance recorded in my memory that connects this text with my grandfather and me. The event occurred many years ago. It was announced that I was going to preach in a certain country town in the eastern counties. I'm not often late, for I feel that punctuality is one of those little virtues that may prevent great sins. He's an English guy, you can tell. But I have no control over railway delays and breakdowns, Thus, I was considerably tardy when I reached the appointed place. Like sensible people, they had begun their worship and had proceeded as far as the sermon. As I neared the chapel, I perceived that someone was in the pulpit preaching. And who should the preacher be but my dear, venerable grandfather? He saw me as I came in the door and made my way up the aisle. At once, he said, here comes my grandson. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Can you, Charles? As I made my way through the throng, I answered, You can preach better than I can. Do I pray? Go on. But he would not agree to that. He insisted that I must take the sermon, and so I did, continuing with the subject just where he left off. There, he said, I was preaching on, For by grace you have been saved. I have been setting forth the source and fountainhead of salvation, And I am now showing them the channel of it through faith. Now, Charles, you take it. Go on. I am so much at home with these glorious truths that I did not feel any difficulty in taking from my grandfather the thread of his message and joining my thread to it. So as to continue without a break, our agreement in the things of God made it easy for us to be joint preachers of the same topic. I went on with through faith. And then I proceeded to the next point, and that not of yourselves. Based on this essential phrase, I was explaining the weakness and inability of human nature and the certainty that salvation could not be of ourselves when I had my coattail pulled and my beloved grandfather took his turn again. When I spoke of our depraved human nature, the good old man said, I know most about that, dear friends. So he took up the parable and for the next five minutes set forth a solemn, and humbling description of our lost estate, the depravity of our natures, and the spiritual death under which we were found. When he had said his say in a very gracious manner, his grandson was allowed to go on again, to the dear old man's great delight. For now and then, he would say in a gentle tone to me, Good, good. Once, he said, Tell them that again, Charles. Tell them that again. And of course, I did tell them that again. It was a happy exercise for me to sharing, bearing witness to truths of such vital importance that are so deeply impressed on my heart. You know, as I considered what I believe the Lord would have us do at this conference, it was as if I could hear Mr. Spurgeon's grandfather saying, you know what, tell them that again. Tell them that again. 
And that's why we, we designed this retreat to be built around the theme, All of Grace. You see, you are a church that knows a lot about grace, and I trust that we always will. And yet, even in a church where we know a lot about grace, we can all too easily grow cold to grace and move away from grace and not be dazzled by all that grace means in a way we once were. It's like, it becomes like an anesthetic to us almost. And so my hope is that as we tell them that again over this retreat, that we'll be freshly amazed by the Lord again. We'll freshly delight in Him in song. We'll freshly delight in Him in His Word. And so I thought Rich just did an outstanding job this morning looking at sovereign grace. And this evening I want us to look at saving grace, which is why we find ourselves here in Isaiah 53. Martin Luther once said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. This is the text I believe the Lord wants to run after us in. He wants to speak to us from. He wants to lay hold of us in. And so let's attend to Isaiah chapter 53 for 700 years before the Savior ever arrived. This is all about him. Let's read this. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one 
my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around Isaiah 53, I'm aware we gather on holy ground because we gather 700 years before you even walked the earth around Calvary. Lord, did you open our eyes then to this text? Would you enable us to see the glories of all that you've done? Lord, we've heard about sovereign grace, and as now we move to saving grace, would we be staggered afresh of all that you've done? Lord, help us to behold the truth of all that you've done in your precious name. Amen. There is a verse from a well-known hymn that when I was studying for this text afresh, I felt was very relevant to this evening, very relevant as we give ourselves to studying Isaiah 53. And it reads as follows. It says, Oh, help me to understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One. To bear away my sin. Oh, help me to understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. This evening as we come to Isaiah 53, we are in desperate need for divine assistance. We, and we need his grace. And we specifically need his grace and we specifically need divine assistance, I believe. Because as we come to Isaiah 53, what we have here is a picture of what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth, we have a prophet prophesying what it's going to mean to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Charles Spurgeon himself says that this chapter is the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. If you could distill the Bible down to a chapter, he says it would be this one. And it is the very gospel in essence. Kyle Yates, professor of Old Testament theology at Southern Seminary, says Isaiah 53 is the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. And Franz Dalich, the German scholar, my favorite, says this chapter, listen, this chapter looks as if it has been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha itself. Here we find what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. So what did it all mean? Well, three things. 
Here's the first. Here's the first thing of what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. First thing it meant was human rejection. See, surely we would have expected that when Jesus comes to earth as the Son of God Himself, as the incarnate King, that everybody would be waiting for Him. And as He arrives, having surely been born into a palace, having been spotted a mile off, there would be trumpets out, there would be banners out, and everybody would be hailing Him as the King. Because this is the one who made us, this is the one who is worthy of all glory and all praise. And yet Isaiah tells us that when Jesus arrives, that's not going to happen at all. It's going to be very different. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely everybody would be bowing to their knees, because this is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet Isaiah makes it very clear, 700 years before Jesus arrives, that when he comes... He will be despised, he will be rejected, and esteemed he will not be. See, by human standards, Jesus would be unimpressive. So to merely observe the Savior according to human wisdom, apart from divine illumination, would have been to be significantly unimpressed with the Savior. In the natural, Isaiah details for us that the Savior would indeed appear somewhat unimpressive. In verse 2a, we see that his birth and background would be unimpressive. He wouldn't be born into a major metropolitan capital city. He wouldn't be born into the palace of a great kingdom. No, he would grow up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Unimpressive. His appearance would be unimpressive. He wouldn't be overly striking or attractive. You know, all these people that paint really nice scenes of Jesus and his disciples, and it's obvious which one he is. Well, clearly, from the Bible, you would never be able to pick him out. If you took a picture of a load of Palestinian Jews, you wouldn't be able to tell which one was Jesus. He would just blend into the crowd. He, He was unimpressive in birth, unimpressive in background, unimpressive in appearance. And the result, Isaiah tells us, is that he would be despised and rejected by men and esteemed he would not be. And Isaiah always knew that was going to happen. That's why we read in verse 1, who has believed what they heard from us? He's basically saying, Lord, I know what you want me to write here. No one's going to believe it. No no one's going to believe that this is the king to come. See, to really understand it, you have to understand what was going on with the original recipients of the book of Isaiah. To really understand what's going on, we have to put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. In chapters 1 through 39, we're we're pretty much centering everything around God's judgment. Israel and Judah have rejected God. They flee from the Lord. They're doing their own thing. 
So God tells them that effectively I'm going to come and wipe you out. You're going to get taken into captivity. And it's a very, very dark scene for 39 chapters. And yet in chapter 40, we have a promise of deliverance. We have that wonderful line where he says, Comfort, comfort my people. And the tone changes where he promises deliverance. From chapter 40 through 52, there's a promise of deliverance. And there's also a promise of a king. A wonderful counselor. A mighty God to come. An everlasting father. A prince of peace. There is a promise of deliverance. There is a promise of a king to come. And so the people of Israel and Judah are assuming and expecting a mighty warrior king. No doubt in the line of David, a mighty warrior king to come. And so when they come to Isaiah 53, they would have no category for this guy. They would be scratching their heads wondering, who is this? I'm expecting a mighty warrior king. Who's this dude being talked about and related about here in Isaiah 53? And for 700 years... Their understanding really didn't change at all. From generation to generation, they just didn't get it. As the 700 years on, you hear the phrase, can anything good really come out of Nazareth? And is this not the carpenter's son? 700 years on from when this was written, they just cannot understand as Jesus walks the earth, what on earth is going on with him? Jesus is baptized, he's then tempted by Satan, and it doesn't take long, as we know, as we study the Gospel of Mark, that crowds start coming out towards him, right? They all want to be with him, they all want to be healed by him, they all want to have demons rebuked from them by him. But as you continue reading the same Gospel, you realize it's that very same crowd that start to reject him, believing him to be a blasphemer. I want you to heal me, I want you to get rid of all my demons, but you're claiming to be God. So here's my response to that. Crucify him. The very same crowds that started to come out to him in the first place are the very same crowds that start to turn on him and are shouting, crucify him! And the night before Jesus dies, he sits with his disciples Men who he called three years earlier, and he explains to them, the shepherd will be struck, and when he is, the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter cottons on what he's saying. Peter's aware that you're you're saying we're going to leave you, and I will never leave you. Now, being typical Peter, he's you know he's a bit down on all the other disciples. These mugs might leave you, but I, I will never leave you. And Jesus explains to him, Peter, you're all going to leave me. And so will you. Before the cock crows twice, Peter, you'll deny me three times. They They then walk out from the upper room. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Savior calls Peter and James and John, would you come out to pray with me? He says, listen, just just stay here and and pray. And he goes a little further and and overwhelmed by what he's got to carry. He keeps returning to those disciples. But each and every time he finds them asleep. See, Mark is helping us see they're, they're already rejecting Jesus. 
And when Jesus is then arrested, they all start to flee from him. Everybody runs, everybody's afraid and scared. And as Peter pursues in the background, before the cock crows twice, he does indeed deny Jesus three times. And on the third time, the very moment when he denies the Savior, the cock crows and Jesus walks past. And he walks past on the way to Calvary alone. He was going to suffer and die alone. When he was at Calvary, there weren't people caring for him. There were people spitting on him and swearing at him and mocking him and laughing him and shouting throughout, Crucify him! You would have surely expected the King of Kings to come in fanfare and greatness. No, he he was esteemed not and rejected and despised. Because what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin meant first and foremost human rejection. That's not all it meant. Number two, it also meant substitutionary suffering. me at verse 4 through 6. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, the suffering of the Savior in this text is immediately obvious. He is going to experience human rejection. People are going to despise him and reject him. He will die alone. He will also experience profound physical suffering. As you examine these words, it's clear that there will be immense physical suffering taking place in the Savior's life. He would go on 700 years later to be beaten, to be scourged, to be mocked, to be whipped. He would then die in agony on a wooden cross with nails driven through his hands, nails driven through his feet. It would be a torture that that was actually outlawed soon after because people realized it was too cruel. You didn't die of blood loss. You died of suffocation because the weight of your body would keep going down and you'd push back up off your feet. There's only so many times you can do that, which is why eventually they would break your legs so that you fall and you suffocate. The Savior would die in profound physical suffering, but worst of all, by a long way, was the profound suffering of the soul that he would experience. Literally, divine abandonment. See, when he was in the garden, and it says that he literally fell, it's because he was looking at the cup. He was looking at the cup of God's wrath. 
He knew that what it would mean to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin, would mean the Father turning his face away from him. The Father that he had spent eternity past in, in joy and unity in a way that we can only dream of. And yet he knew as he died on the cross, the Father would turn his face away from his Son, and when he turns back, he would turn back in righteous, holy wrath. And the Savior's response in his humanity is he fell to the ground and inquired of the Lord, Father, is there any other way? And as he hung then on the cross, declaring, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows the answer. But in that moment, he's overwhelmed. The suffering that the Savior experiences is immediately obvious in this passage. And yet I believe what Isaiah wants us to notice here, more so even than the suffering, is that this is substitutionary suffering. This is not just suffering. This is substitutionary suffering. Substitutionary suffering for me and for every single one of you in this room this evening. That's why we have this language of substitution written for us here. At least ten times in these three verses, we come face to face with the personal pronouns, our, we, and us. And so we see he, and him, and his. And then in stark contrast, we see our, we, us. We're in this picture. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. We, like all, have gone astray, each one of us to his own way. Do you see it? This is the divine reality revealed. The reality that as his sheep we have all played a part in his suffering. The reality that as his sheep we, you and I, were the true source of his pain. He was there for us. And we see it displayed in these verses. You know, as you all know we have five children and our number four child, Liam, brings his dad a lot of joy. But he's got a new word or a new phrase. And his new phrase is, it's not me. And he just knows his way around that phrase. And he's not very like, good with the phrase. He's not very bright with the phrase, which really helps you as a parent. But the, still the premise is, it's not me. And he'll do it all the time. So just recently, he put a marble um, through our conservatory window, which wasn't ideal, this big marble. And he, he came back in with the, the marble in question and, and just held the marble and just first thing came out of his mind, it's not me. <laughs> and I think, oh, we better research, we better have a family meeting to discern who it might be. You know, you'll have other days where Savannah will be crying, you'll, she'll be screaming. I can see through the window that Liam's strangling her and trying to beat her up. And you'll just walk in and go, oh! Not me. He'll have no idea what's going on. He's not allowed to play with, with Emma's iPad. Yeah, so he actually brought the iPad in the other He's walking with the iPad. The iPad that he's not allowed. He walks in the kitchen with the iPad 
And Liam, Liam, you appear to have the iPad there. Not me, Dad, not me. And you're like, <laughs> it just doesn't seem to grasp this concept. You know, there's just something with kids that they seem to not be able to grasp. Um, yeah, it looks just like you, actually, right now. So his famous phrase is, it's not me. Actually, just in the bedroom before we arrived. I, I, we, we're not letting them just climb up on the top bunks because, well, Liam's a danger to himself up there. So we say, son, you stay right down here. And so he's on the top bunk. And I'm like, Liam, are you meant to be up there? It's not me. You look just like, you look just like the guy who uh, is one of my sons and you seem to be on the top bunk. It's just, it's in his life. And the truth is, I don't think we ever quite grow out of that. I just think we get a bit smarter with it. Before I became a pastor, I used to work in car insurance. And it was an interesting, discerning season of my life to experience that even as adults, no doubt, nobody thinks it's their fault. Very rarely do people write in an insurance claims, yes, it was me, and thanks for that. It's never their fault. You know, everybody's always complaining. It's always the other person's fault. It's the way they were driving. The lights were just wrong. You know, the police must have just got it wrong. It was always somebody else's fault. You know, I think even as, ad- as adults, we still have the tendency in our hearts to basically say, like my son, it's not me. And yet Isaiah is simply unwilling to let us do that on this issue. He's unwilling to have you and I declare, not me. And so he writes this in such a way where you are forced to see He's there for my griefs and my sorrows and my transgressions and my iniquities. I had gone astray to my own way. We can't say it's not me. It was absolutely you. And it was absolutely me too. And Jesus didn't just suffer. He suffered as our substitution. He uses then the language of substitution throughout this text. And to see this, I think, really does change everything, doesn't it? On July the 31st, 1941, a prisoner escaped from Auschwitz concentration camp. And reprisal on the Nazis took 10 men and said that these 10 men would die in an underground bunker of starvation. One of the men who was selected, the ninth man, was named Francis Gaginistic. This man, as he was called, cried out, My poor wife and children. At that moment, a small, unimpressive man, a 47-year-old Pole, with small, wire-framed glasses, stepped forward and said, I am a Catholic priest. I don't have a family. I want to die instead of this man. His offer was accepted, and his name was Maximilian Kolb, and he was sent down into that bunker with the other men. He was a remarkable man. He got them all praying and singing, and the atmosphere in that bunker was like a church. In the end, they gave him a lethal injection to kill him. On October the 10th, 1982, in St. Peter's Square in Rome, Maximilian Kolb's death was put into its proper perspective. Present in the crowd of 150,000 people was Francis Gaginistic, together with his wife and his children and his children's children. The many 
had been saved by the one's self-sacrificial and substitutionary death. And the Pope described his death like this, a victory like that won by our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, all stories like that are effective and helpful to see what it is for somebody to die in somebody else's place. But they're also profoundly inadequate. And here's why. This man, incredibly brave though it was, he died for somebody he he loved. Died for somebody he knew. Died for a friend. Yet as Jesus is hanging at Calvary, he's dying for the very crowd that is saying, Crucify him! Spitting on him, mocking him, declaring him to be a fool. Jeffrey Grogan says in his commentary, Jesus gives his life for the sheep who strangely are his murderers. My friends, if we had been there on that day at Calvary, we would have been joining with the crowd. We wouldn't have been standing around going, this is just awful. We would have been standing with the crowd outside of illuminating grace as seen in verse 1. We would have been standing with the crowd shouting, crucify him. Who is this guy, this blasphemer? See him gone. And yet in grace, all along, he was crying out in pain and suffering in death for his sheep who are his very murderers. We all carry the nails of Jesus Christ and the cross in our pockets. They belong to each and every one of us. In this passage, we see not only human rejection, we see substitutionary suffering. So what did it mean to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin? Well, it meant substitutionary suffering. Suffering in in our place. And here's the third thing. It meant, number three, innocent grief. Look at verse 7. He says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. You see that? Although he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. You know, this is by far and away the greatest miscarriage of justice our world has ever seen. He didn't deserve to be hanging there. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth in any shape or form. This was wrong. He had given his life and like a lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't do that in in weakness. He did that in strength. 
Because even though he, he knew ultimately he was innocent, he knew he needed to go to Calvary for us. And so like a lamb, he, he was led. Even though he had done no violence. And even though there was no deceit in his mouth. You know, my friends, herein lies the love of the Son for you, doesn't it? You can see displayed for you here the way the Savior feels about you. He hung at Calvary in your place because he loves you. And in verse 10 then, we get to see the love of the Father for us as well. See, the Savior's love, I think, is immediately obvious to us, and yet the Father's love can be all too easily missed in this text. And yet, here is the Father's love for you. Don't miss this. Verse 10. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You know, when children suffer, as a dad, I can tell you that's, that's one of the worst things you ever face in your life. When your kids are struggling, particularly when they're physically suffering, I, I can think of a few things that would affect me more in my heart than that. And so I think particularly things that I've walked through with my son, Josh, and probably been the hardest things I've faced in my life. So when Josh was born, as many of you would know, he... He was born with only one kidney that worked properly. He was also born with two holes in his heart. And he was also born with an internal cleft palate. And so until he was six years old, he didn't speak at all. And so what that meant was when Josh was three years old, um, he didn't say anything apart from a few occasional sort of squawks. It's amazing what you can actually do through sign though and pointing. And, and so we actually taught him Makaton. So he learned some basic stuff. And, and I remember going in with him and was not too keen, felt that would be overwhelming. So I went in with Josh and we, we went there before the doctors and he, they were basically going to give him an operation where they would cut from just behind his tooth all the way down the back of his throat and change his muscles around. So move them from vertical to the other way completely. And, and that's a big thing as a parent when you're taking in this kid who doesn't really know what's going on. And I'll never forget the, the first time we took him in for the first operation that he had to go through. And Josh was only using Makaton at that point. And so the nurses and doctors would come around and they'd, they'd start to prod him a little bit and poke him around. And he wasn't too keen on that because he doesn't like pain. He's a bit like his dad. So he wasn't too keen on any prodding or anything of that nature. And so after the first time the doctor did that, he would look at me and through sign would basically say, just talking. And I would say to him, yeah, just, just talking. It's fine. And that happened about three times. But the next day, the next morning, that the doctors and the nurses came for him and they said to me, it, it's time for his, for his operation. And Josh starts panicking and, and, he's, and he said to me, just talking? And I said, um, no, not, not this time. It's, it's time for us to go in. And so I um, picked him up and I took him into the theater where we had to be, and Josh was very distressed. And so they asked me as his dad, would I, would I, would I help to hold him as they started to, to put him to sleep? And so I did. 
And he's looking at me as if to say, Dad, what are you doing? And if I could have changed that in a moment for him, I would have. I wanted to go into dad mode and fight everybody in the room at that moment and get him out of there. But I, but I held him and they put him to sleep and, and as I walked out, I was overwhelmed with the love of the Father to me. Because I knew that God the Father didn't put his son through an operation for me. He crushed his son. And if I love my son this much, and yet I'm sinful, how much more must the father love his son in a profound and glorious way? And yet, It was the will of the Lord to crush him for me. It was the will of the Lord to put him to grief. My friends, if you ever doubt the love of God for you, I want to encourage you to make your way to Isaiah 53 verse 10. Because there you see fully displayed for you the lengths that the Father is willing to go to see you be made right with Him. The lengths that He is willing to go so that you could be reconciled and redeemed and justified and forgiven of all your sin. Ray Altland Jr. in his commentary says, Isaiah writes as if we were there at the cross. Because we were. If it wasn't our guilt that required the death of Jesus, then what did? Remember Rembrandt painting the raising of the cross? He paints himself into the picture as one of the men crucifying the Lord. He not only portrays Jesus, he also includes himself in the scene. And that, is exactly what Isaiah is doing here. Not with a brush on canvas, but with a pen on paper. Isaiah is not only describing Jesus, Isaiah is telling our story too. It's exactly right. He's not only painting a picture of Jesus, we're painted into the picture too as we realize he was suffering innocent grief for us. You know, in verse 12, we see then this wonderful picture of the spoils of the king, of a victorious king. It points us to how 700 years later, Jesus not only died, but he rose again. And he rose again as a true and glorious and victorious king making it possible for us to be forgiven of our sin, for us to be redeemed, for us to be justified, for us to be adopted into the family of God, for us to know that heaven is our home, not because of us, but because of His glorious finished work in our place. We see a glorious, victorious King sharing His spoils. And what spoils they are. The spoils of salvation. 
the spoils of it is finished. When that temple curtain was torn in two, all the spoils of the kingdom were accessible to all. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we could brandish the spoils of the kingdom, and that's what we see hinted at and pointed to in verse 12. But what we see in verse 10 is what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Oh, help me to understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. What it did mean to you? What did it mean to thee? It meant human rejection. It meant that he would suffer and die alone. It meant substitutionary suffering. As he died in in anguish and distress and pain, distress of body and distress of soul, as our substitute. And it meant innocent grief. My friends, I want to encourage you. This is amazing grace. And, And this is saving grace. And this is your king. So as you gaze at him, and as you see him for who he really is, would it cause us all to delight in him and love him and desire to live for him all the more. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word and we see what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away our sin, Lord, it is overwhelming. Lord, when we look down on the Mount Everest of this prophecy and see Golgotha and see Calvary where you died for us, Lord, we cannot help but be lost in wonder and amazement for how marvelous is your love for me. Lord, I do pray then for all those that may have grown cold to you that may have got familiar, maybe over-familiar with all that you've done. Lord, would they return to Isaiah 53 often and would they marvel at who you are? And would we be a people then that move forward amazed, amazed at all that you've done for us. In your precious name, amen.